Sometimes this uh, practice is referred to as essentially a practice of letting go. Or what the what the Buddha referred to more a little more specifically as practice of non clinging. There's a famous story where somebody asks the Buddha, you know, says, Hey look, I, I haven't got time to hang around for weeks and meditate. I you know, I don't I just wanna get the answer. What's what's the essence of your teaching? The Buddha said, don't cling. There you go. Don't cling. Specifically, he says, don't cling to anything as I, as me, or as mine. And as I say, sometimes that's translated as a practice of letting go, letting go of I, me, and mine, letting go of what I uh, cling to, letting go of what I tighten around, letting go of what I hold on to. <coughs> but as we see, even though it's nice to have a neat formula, just let go. As we see, it's a little more tricky than that. Because there's lots that we don't like in our experience and that we find difficult in our experience. And actually, it's easy for us to use the language of letting go. Oh, I've just got this thing. I'm just going to let it go. Right? And in the language of letting go, actually we notice that that's just a kind of spiritually nice way of putting it but what we mean is, I want to get rid of it. Sometimes, actually, especially when for that which is difficult, and sometimes we need more the language of letting be rather than letting go. And so I think the, the original the term that the Buddha uses, anupadana, non-clinging. Non-clinging to my agenda for what should be happening, for what my experience should be like, for where I want to get to rather than where I am, etc. And that's what we've been working with in various ways. The noticing where the clinging is, noticing where I harden around my experience where I get tight around what's happening. And we've been working with that. The the base of our work with that has been in the most direct, tangible expression. The way we can physically, viscerally, feel the tightening, the hardening. Sometimes we can feel the, the active hardening or tightening around our experience. Right? Just noticing that I'm tense. And even though in a small way, we notice the whole movement that the practice is pointing us to. I notice that there's tension. The noticing itself reveals 
the discomfort of the tension and sometimes the unnecessariness of the tension. And in that noticing, the softening. And in the softening, freedom of the tension. And sometimes what we're noticing isn't so much the active tension, but a kind of long-established tension patterns. So long-established sometimes that we don't know they're there. So long-established, established even before we started to be uh, conscious of our individual experience. So long established that we don't know, we don't know that it's tension. We just think it's normal to feel like this. It has always been normal to feel like this, right? You can't. We can't notice tension until we notice tension, right? It's like you know. Sometimes in meditation, we're sitting and I evoke a sense of upright and open and relaxed. Yes, okay. Got it. And then I might say, oh, and softening the muscles around your eyes, for example. And, oh yeah, there's tension around my eyes. So why didn't you soften it before when I just said, hey, relax? Mm-hmm. Because you, don't, you can't notice that there's tension until you notice that there's tension. Once you really notice that there's a tension, that there's tension, oh. Natural wisdom knows to let go. It's like, actually, I don't need to do the work of letting go. It's a lot of it, me trying to do the work of letting go is part of the making tension. Oh, I've got to let go. I've got to do something. It's bad enough that I've got this tension going on. Now I've got extra tension of trying to let go of the tension. I don't need to let go of tension. I need to find the tension. I need to listen to the tension. I need to explore the tension. I need to really see what am I doing that's creating tension. When I really come into relationship with the tension, it will let go. So we've explored some of the things that we harden around. I mean, we've been exploring moment to moment the tendency to harden, the hardening of our demands, our defences and distractions. We've been exploring in these afternoon teachings some of the way that hardening plays out. And I thought just to continue a little the thread of that, exploring, particularly the hardening around views. We've spoken already about the the dichotomizing that we do, the dichotomizing that is the, the nature of conceptual mind, that it thinks in terms of opposites, this and that. me and you, right and wrong. And we see that polarizing. 
everywhere. I mean, we see it in our own minds. We see it playing out in our cultures. We see it in the, the ranting of the newspapers and the politicians. The, the, the hardening around a polarised view. We see the way we go to war <coughs> for our polarised views. And we see the way that everyone's convinced that they're right. That's the nature of hardening around a view is I'm convinced I'm right. The convinced I'm right is a hardening. Holding a view isn't necessarily a hardening. We need to hold views. It's helpful to have views. But have you, you noticed that your view tends to change? You know, it's like a debate or something, or sometimes reading an article in The Guardian. And I read the article and I think, oh, yeah, that's really clear and reasonable and good and right. And then I start to read the comments underneath and I think, oh, that's a good point. <laughs> Maybe the article's wrong and the commentary is right. And of course it's... It's helpful, it's part of the way we can reflect and deepen our understanding, right? By comparing views and reflecting on views and uh, contemplating views. But we can see in the contemplation, whether of the views out there in the Guardian, or whether of the views that I hold in here, or whether the view that I have that you have the opposite view of, and the, the conflict we get into that, we can see the tendency not just to hold a view and explore a view and reflect on a view, but the tendency to cling to a view, <clears throat> to harden around a view. And then we get this situation where I'm convinced I'm right, and you're convinced you're right. And there's a kind of comedy to that if it wasn't so tragic of how convinced I can be I'm right when you have the opposite view and you're convinced that you're right it's worth bearing in mind as well when we listen to our friends or our families or our colleagues telling us how right they are about some other situation it doesn't involve us but when I hear you I really hear how right you are And yet, just to bear in mind that if I was to hear from the other person, I would be hearing how right they are as well. So when we attend to views, and when we attend to what the hardening around views does, we come back to the importance of ambiguity. To not get stuck in the hardening, to feel for the way I'm hardening around a view, contracting around a view, tensing around a view, narrowing my sense of what is, sticking it on the view. In the end, the views we hold aren't the main event. Because as we, as we see, our views can change so easily sometimes. What's more significant than which views we hold is how we hold them. 
the degree to which we tighten around them. That's what causes us the misery of conflict, the misery of feeling like I'm right. Right is a pretty miserable place to be. Right is a lonely place to be. Right is an isolated place to be. On the high horse of right. And yet, you know, we live in a world of opposites. We live in a a language of opposites. We live amidst these concepts of opposites. And we, we experience in terms of those opposites. Oh, the Buddha calls them the worldly winds that buffet, the worldly winds of opposites that buffet us. And specifically, the, the ones he points to are um, the four worldly winds gain and loss, pleasure and pain, success and failure. Praise and blame. And of course, the nature of opposites is we can only know we only know an opposite by its opposite. Right? Like we only know sunshine, oh it's sunny. We only know sunny as sunny because we can contrast it with the opposite abs- with the opposite, with the absence of sunny. Right? We we wouldn't have a word for something that we couldn't see in terms of its not having an absence. If there was no night, we wouldn't call this day. We only know success by the contrast with failure. We know pleasure by the contrast with pain. Things can't exist without their opposite. And so much so that actually it's not that there are two things in opposite. There's, like we've been exploring in all kinds of realms, there's a fluidity. There's a movement. The, the one is implicated already in the other. The night is implicated in the day. And yet, we tend to live in a kind of willful, not quite willful, okay, let's say a conditioned, we lived in a conditioned sort of blinkering of that truth. And we tend to live as if I ought to know success without knowing failure. As if I ought to be able to get pleasure without having pain. As if I should be able to gain without losing. What was the other one? As if I should be praised but never blamed. Good luck. I mean, try. You know, try by all means. That's what we do. That's what everybody everybody has tried, and everybody has failed. And yet, we imagine the kind of you know, we imagine a life for ourselves. We tend to project forward a life wherein there's only uh, pleasure and praise and success and gain. And then when that doesn't, when we can't make that happen. We think there's something wrong. It shouldn't be like that. 
there's something wrong with the situation or there's something you know we, we kind of want to blame something for that I blame you for that I blame my parents for that they're good people to blame for everything going wrong right? or I blame myself for that but that sense that something's wrong whereas actually something's natural it's like this. Success and failure belong as part of the same continuum. Pleasure and pain belong together. We can't know one without the other. And so as we confront the nature of opposites, as we confront the tendency to, oh, for that sort of tunnel vision around this end of the opposite, the tunnel vision of the view where I'm right, or the tunnel vision of the, that I ought to just have this end of the continuum and not that. And as we, as we confront that, we start to, get, we start to sense the, the freedom of ambiguity, of not holding the one and the other so tightly, of allowing the fluidity and the continuum. Because otherwise it's a terrible pressure to put on oneself. Right? Even though no being ever in the history of the universe has ever managed it before, I ought to only have pleasure. And I should only be praised. Etc, etc. And then when, when the other happens... <coughs> That, that, that casting around to blame. And even though we might lash out and sort of blame others, the real pressure we tend to put on ourselves, that as if I've got it wrong, as if I've done something wrong, as if I am wrong, that's the inevitable result of the of the fixating, of the hardening, the idealizing, the idealizing of pleasure and the demonizing of pain, the idealizing of praise and the demonizing of blame, the idealizing of gain, the demonizing of loss. What's the other one? The idealizing of success and the demonizing of failure. In other words, the idea, what all of that relates to, of course, the, the common denominator in all that is me, my pleasure, my praise, my success, my failure. The idealizing of me and how my life ought to look and, simultaneously, the demonizing of me and how I keep fucking up, getting it wrong, messing up. As if, as if that's what's happening. As if that's what's happening. And that's the territory of Mara that we spoke about last night. Mara rushes into that space. Mara is the voice of idealizing and demonizing. The voice of how I should be. The voice of shooting on myself.
there's an extraordinary hardening, contracting. The tension of idealizing, of having some view, some contracted view, tight view of how I should be, and then pressurizing myself to, to somehow, not even to get there, but, but as if I already ought to be there. And we start to undo the, that tyranny when, as we start to really recognize the hardening in it, the Buddhist language of the clinging in it, the language we've been using, the contraction in it, the contracted view, but also just the, the direct energetic visceral, visceral contraction. That's what we can best pay attention to. In the moment where you're stuck in a view, you'll be able to find the, the, the actual visceral hardening of that stuckness. Hence the emphasis on, on, uh, on this capacity we have to an infinite degree, actually, to an infinite degree, to to uh, inhabit, to an infinitely more subtle degree, to inhabit the direct, energetic, visceral expression of whatever's happening in our consciousness, so that we can find the tension, so that we can open to and take care of like we were saying yesterday, so that we can love the tension, so that it can unwind, uncling, uncontract, so that it can self-liberate, so that it will let go. And then, of course, we tend to do that same idealizing when we're not busy idealizing ourselves in the way I just described. We get busy idealizing others, how you should be, whoever the others are, all the others, actually. But particularly the significant others, the poor, long-suffering partners, we have all kinds of great insights about how you should be. And the significant, the, you know, the ones we choose to be with, the ones actually that we love the most, are the ones that we put the most shooting onto. And of course, the idealizing of the other is a recipe for disappointment. Maybe you could raise your hand if you've never failed to be disappointed by someone. Right? Is there anyone you've ever met that you've really got to know, that you've really got intimate with, that you've never been disappointed by? That's not because everybody's faulty. Right? 
It's not because the world is lining up people just to come along and disappoint you. (laughs) Though that's what the idealizing mind does. It's because it's a setup for failure. Idealizing is a setup for failure. Things are too ambiguous. Life can't be all up one end of the scale called successful, gaining, praising, etc. We tend to idealize our teachers. So please let me off the hook. (laughs) I'll only disappoint you. Inevitably, of course, we idealize our practice. We idealize this strange thing, and I call it a strange thing, because what makes it a strange thing is the idealizing. And so much idealizing has gone on to this strange thing, this strange word called enlightenment. Don't know what it means. The Buddha never used it, even though the word seems to be used the most in connection with, the, with Buddhist teachings. The, the kind of epithets that the Buddha used that have ended up being translated as enlightenment, which is of course a word that was taken from the European social, cultural movement. Yeah, but the words the Buddha uses mostly are um, I'm trying to think of the Pali now. Vimuti and Bodhi. Yeah. Bodhi like Buddha, meaning awake, awakening, and freedom or liberation. The freeing up of things. And the way we've been speaking about, recognizing that the, the, the tighten, tightness or clinging around something, and as that tightness lets go, the sense, the recognizable sense of of things freeing up. And as things free up, and as we pay attention, as we start to understand actually what attention is, and therefore as attention clarifies, as our attention clarifies, a sense of being more awake, a sense of a greater clarity, transparency, spaciousness, And of course we can idealize around those words as well. But there's something about those words that they're in the present continuous form. Awakening, awakening, awakening. Always room for awakening. But enlightenment. We've lost the, the verb, we've lost the dynamism, we've lost the ongoingness. And we've got a thing called enlightenment. And wow how we can project our idealization onto that word. That thing. You know what I mean? Just even grammatically, right? Awakening, present continuous, ongoing, ever new, fresh, ing, ing, ing. Enlightenment. It sounds like a dead thing to me. 
And that's what we're trying to get to something called enlightenment, as if it's a thing, as if it's out there waiting for us. And as if when finally my legs stop hurting and my mind stops rebelling and something, the stars line up correctly, then I'll get it. Enlightenment. And then I'll be munted. (laughs) And everything will be okay. And we can do that in a lot of ways, but particularly the way we do that, we tend to do that actually with the the most precious, uh, the deepest senses we have of practice. So some something beautiful happens, some some uh, moment of clarity, peace, grace. Intimacy with life, whatever we might call it. Something opens up. Our meditation just uh, has a moment of great refinement or depth to it. And we tend to take though that beautiful, precious moment and then we dump it onto this thing called enlightenment. And we fill up the sense of enlightenment with our own projections about what it is and what it will be like when I get there. And other erroneous views. All we can, all we can imagine about where we think we're going is, can only be erroneous, can only be false, can only be distorted, let's say. Right? As if, <coughs> if I was to show you a fruit that you'd never seen before, that you'd never tasted before. And I was to start to tell you about this great fruit. And you will start to imagine what it would be like to taste it. All your imaginings could only be inaccurate, right? And you start to think, well, I've had a different, that other kind of fruit was like this, and another kind of, amongst all the different fruits I have had, I could imagine... You, the, the fruits that you have eaten are, you know, they might give you a vague sweetness. That's probably going to be there, right? They might give you the vaguest sense, but as soon as you try to be particular, based on other fruits you have experienced, you're just distorting your view of that fruit. And it would be obvious well, the best thing to do is not sit here wondering about the fruit and inventing ideas about the fruit and worrying about all the other fruits of it and how they're going to... No. Let's see what it tastes like. Let's see what it tastes like. Transformation is the way we transform through, thing, through being awakening more and more, and through things freeing up, transformation has to be, not has to be, transformation is unimaginable. Because you, we can't, you can't imagine something you haven't experienced. Or at least you can only imagine it inaccurately. So that, that tightening we do around thinking I know where I'm headed 
I'm thinking I know what's in the way of where I'm headed. I'm thinking I know what I need to get rid of. We might call that a practice of awakening, but it's we could maybe better call it a setup for failure and disappointment. We're invited to find out by tasting the fruit that's here. Exploring the experience we have. Inhabiting the ambiguity, the uncertainty, the open field of possibility. Because if we can't, if we, if we, if we, as we start to see that we can't, that we're kind of, um, yeah, that we're setting ourselves up by relying on uh, the concepts we cling to, relying on fixed ideas, relying on our idealizations. And otherwise, how how are we to how are we to live amidst? Uh, I'm not sure how I'm trying to say this. It's like with the 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 movements we've been uh, speaking about, the demands and defences and distractions. Now we're asked to live in this ambiguity. How how are we to follow our longing? To follow the, the creative movement, the, the ongoingness of our life, without hardening into demand. <coughs> How are we to honour the importance of saying no, of turning away from what's not helpful or not healthy or not skillful, without hardening? into the rigid response of defence. How are we to choose where to put our attention? What to support? Without that becoming uh, a losing our attention and distraction. Those deep experiences, those moments of clarity, those what we might call the touchstone of your practice. The the knowing that's there when thing when the when the space clears. The knowing that's not a view. A view always has an opposite. Maybe it's like this, maybe it's like that. When I harden round my view, I'm convinced it's like this. And yet, when I start to hear the other view, oh, jump over to the other camp, I think it's like that. Mm-hmm. Views belong in the world of opposites. And we're in this camp or that camp, right or left. But when we find a different kind of knowing, that clarity, or that spaciousness, or that depth, or that intimacy opens up, that's a knowing without an opposite. It's a knowing that has the unmistakable taste 
of truth. One knows this is a truer sense of what's happening. One knows this is a freer participation in what's happening. That's important. Not as a way to construct an idealized view out of, but as a touchstone. There is there's access to a truer and freer way of knowing life. And there's and that life is kind of beckoning us into that truer, freer knowing. And that we find ourselves offered up to that truer, freer knowing as we sense what's tight and dare to be in contact, dare to take care, dare to let it uncling. We don't know where we're headed. Like I said, transformation is unimaginable. The future is unimaginable. We don't know where we're headed. Whatever ideas we might have about it. We, we harden around the sense either that I do know or that I should know. But hey friends, we don't know where we're headed. We do know where we are. Or at least we can know where we are. We can know more and more and more of where we are. And we can orientate from where we are. We can, we can orientate to holding views, to tightening around experience, to ossifying more and more throughout our lives, which is what most people do. People that don't, generally, if you don't engage an inner practice of unclinging, you tend to just cling more and more. You get more established in your habits, more ossified in your views, more stuck. Or we can choose to orientate towards a life of non-clinging. And can choose to be deeply respectful to what's happening here, to where it gets tight, and to the possibility for awakening and freedom. It's in our hands, kind of. At least the willingness to look, to meet, to allow, to make room for. And that's all we need to be in our hands. The letting go will take care of itself. May it be so for each one of us and for all beings everywhere.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.